There is a television show that um, one of those reality shows, a group of builders who find a family that is in desperate need, and they build them a palatial house, a magnificent house. Uh, They could be living in a shack that's falling apart, but by the time these builders finish, it is not a shack anymore. They could be living three or four kids in a room, and could be some of those houses health hazards, but by the time this team of builders finished the new house, it becomes a mansion. It becomes a palatial house, designer furniture, exterior and interior designs. Lavished attention is given to the needs of that family. In fact, even to the hobbies of those kids. Lavish living, period. What takes place is nothing short of a transformation. Some may even call it extravagance. And in every case, the camera is very pointed to capture the utter amazement on the part of the recipient family. The camera is always anxious to reveal the depth of emotions on the part of the recipient family, and the heart of gratitude and the thankfulness on the part of the recipient family. The camera always ready to reveal that overwhelming sense of thankfulness and appreciation by the recipient family. Of course, it's impossible to know how long that feeling of appreciation, that feeling of thankfulness lasts, but that's beside the point. For some, I'm sure, it will be a long time. For others, probably for a lifetime. But that does not even come close to how lavished we are by the love of the Father. And I want you to turn, if you haven't already, to 1 John chapter 3. That word, lavish, love of the Father, is the most incredible word. And here's what John is saying. You want a literal translation, Okay. Look! (laughs) Did I startle you? Good. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. What John is saying is this, that God's love is so radical, that God's love is so extravagant, that God's love is so lavishing, that God's love is so extreme in its nature that God's love is so unbelievable to the human mind, that God's love is so awe-inspiring, that God's love would make you marvel, that God's love bedazzles you, that God's love is awe-striking, not just for a minute and not just for a day, not just for a week or a month or a year. It is for the rest of your life and the rest of my life. Here's what he's saying, that if you take time and you... Contemplate the reality of this lavishing love of the Father. If you take time to allow that lavishing love sink in, sink in in your mind and in your heart and in your intellect and your emotions and your imagination, it's enough to make a frozen chosen person shout. That's what he's saying here. (laughs) 
It's enough to make any frozen chosen lose any human inhibitions and politeness. It would make you not care a whit about what people think of you in expression of your thankfulness to God. I'm going to prove to you grammatically from the Bible, grammatically, that the Apostle John was shouting when he was writing this verse, but particularly the first word. If he is dictating to a scribe, and we don't know whether he was dictating or he's writing it longhand, but if he was dictating to a scribe, the scribe would have jumped like he did earlier. That's exactly what would have happened, and I'm going to tell you why. In the very first word, in verse 1, it is in the aorist imperative. (laughs) All of you who hated grammar, I'm going to make you love grammar today. I'm going to make you love grammar because this aorist tense imperative mood is going to explain the entire epistle of 1 John. I'm going to explain it to you in a minute. Do you know what it means to put a word in the aorist imperative? You know what it means? Look! That's what it means. And I'm not doing it justice. He said, in the face of God's lavish love is meant for you to be stunned, literally, every day of your life and stay stunned. It's meant because it is so radical in its nature, it's supposed to make your life radical in nature. It was going to make you amazed every single day. It's supposed to give you goosebumps all the time. It's supposed to excite you always. It's supposed to mesmerize you daily. It's supposed to make you ecstatic in every situation. And I'm telling you, as I was having one-man revival this week, (laughs) just contemplating that word lavish love, I thought of my past rebellion, and I thought of my past selfishness, and I thought of my sin, and I thought of my wanting to do my own thing, of my unworthiness of the grace of God. I thought of my past hopelessness. I thought of my past helplessness, and I thought of my past contempt toward God. And then I see this lavish love of God, and I want to say, look how incredible the love of God is. How extreme God's love toward us. How extravagant God's generosity is. How drastic His redemption, how deep and intense His mercy is, how unreal God's forgiveness is. It's like a guy who said, you know, God loves you so much. He's like your grandmother. He's carrying your picture with him all the time. (laughs) It reminded me of the Sunday school kid when he came home from Sunday school and his mother asked him, she said, "Uh, who taught you the class today? He said, Jesus' grandmother. She said, Jesus' grandmother? He said, yes. She talked about him all the time. <laughs> I thank God for those people who have experienced the lavish love of God, and they continue to pass it on to the kids. A number of years ago, Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, was playing golf in Saudi Arabia. And the man who was the king at the time watched him play, and he very much liked the way he played, and he was become fond of Arnold Palmer. And finally, he, at the end of the time and his visit to Saudi Arabia, the king, he went to see the king, and the king said to him, he said, um, I want to give you a gift before you depart. 
what kind of a gift can I give you? And Arnold Palmer modestly said, no, thank you very much. And, and the gift is not necessary. I enjoyed my visit. I enjoyed playing here. Thank you for your hospitality. But gift is not really necessary. But the king insisted. So Arnold Palmer did not want to offend Arab hospitality. And he said, look, if you give me a golf club uh, that I can remember my visit with, and, um, and then he left. And the next day, a messenger of the king comes to his hotel room, and he was handing him the deeds to a 300-acre golf club. <laughs> you, know, he, you know, I honestly was thinking about this. I said, if an earthly king can lavish a gift beyond the expectation of the recipient, how much more the king of all kings who lavished his love upon us. Yeah, look... Amen. Amen. Praise God. Bless Him. Bless the Lord. But listen, I know, and some of you know, might not be all of you, but some of you know that this concept is very hard for some of you to accept. It's, it's very hard for you to really put your arm around it and, and receive it for what it is. I, I know that. I know some of you think of this extravagant, lavish, irresistible love of God as just a hard concept to get hold of, especially those of you who grew up in homes where the love of the parents was conditional, where the parents said, if you don't do this, I'm not going to love you. I'm going to love you only if you do this. And if you were anything like me, you could never have met the expectations. You, you could never measure up. You, you could never be as good as your brothers. You could never be sure if you're accepted. You could never accomplish enough. If you get a B, you should have had an A. If you get an A, you should have had an A+. Plus. And, and you could never measure up. And I want to tell you this kind of upbringing, because I speak from experience, because this kind of experience can play havoc in your understanding of the lavished love of God the Father through God the Son. It really does. It really does. And when I became enamored with the lavished love of God, it changed my life completely. To understand how extravagant God is in His love, you have to forget and you have to sort things out in your mind that God doesn't work this way. Because some of these folks, bless your heart, you feel that you have to be good enough for God to love you. That you have to be good enough for God to accept you. You feel that you have to work harder and you have to strain and you have to struggle to measure up for God to accept you and love you. That I have to prove that I am worthy of God's love to me. Now, beloved brethren, listen to me. Sisters, listen to me. i got news for you. If your parents made mistakes, listen, we are not here to condemn parents when all parents make mistakes. But if your parents made that mistake, if your parents told you that they would only love you if you do this and do that. That they're going to love you only if you accomplish certain things. Or they're going to love you if you behave in a certain way. I want you to remember how he lavished you with his love. The Bible said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to improve because you can't improve on your own. Why? Listen to me. When you insist 
on earning God's love, I can tell you, and I say it with every ounce of love in my heart, and I say it because I know what it is to pervert the grace of God. When you insist on you making yourself worthy of God's love, you're perverting the grace of God. For the very essence of grace is unworthiness. Why was it called grace? If you have to be good enough for God to love you, why is it called grace? And that perverting of the grace of God is the Protestant and the evangelical way of going back to medieval time of salvation through works. It really is. It's just a sanitized way. Oh, but listen, there are other deadly consequences to this type of thinking. Listen to me. There are some deadly consequences. You know what it is? It is the temptation that is going to come to you every time you become weary of trying hard to earn God's love and you become tired and you cannot do it and you cannot hack it and then you give up. And the reason some Christians' life is up and down and up and down and up and down is because they will try, and then when they, they, they get tired, they fall in that temptation. And then they try again, and they get tired, and they fall in that temptation. And that was the problem with the Gnostics, to whom John is writing to refute those heretics that I've been bringing up in this series of messages, life at its best, who were trying to decimate the church. If they're saying the body is evil anyway, you might as well just give in to sin. But John is saying that when you allow yourself to bask in that incredible lavish love, when you allow yourself to be overwhelmed with that lavish love, this undeserving love, this love that is so pure in grace, you're not going to habitually sin. That's the rest of that passage. I know I focus too much on the first verse, but that's all right. Because, in fact, if you look at verses 2 all the way to 10, that's the point that John is making here. I can summarize it for you. That if you try to comprehend, and if you look how lavish the love of God is, how the lavish the love of the Father through the Son is, you are not going to habitually sin. Because, why? You are too busy, overwhelmed with that lavish love. That's what will happen. Have you seen two people in love? I mean, they're worthless. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, just, well, that's how it is. When you're so much in love with Jesus, an expression of appreciation of His love for you, you are not going to give in to the temptations it's like the kid who said, you know, when the temptation comes knocking, I send Jesus to answer the door. <laughs> First John chapter 3, verse 1, is the key to the entire epistle. If you understand that verse, you have understood the entire epistle. Now, the rest of the passage is basically an explanation about the difference between those who have received and are delighting themselves in the lavished grace of God, the lavished love of the Father, and those who don't. It's that simple. It's a contrast between the two. If you comprehend this look, then you're going to hate sin. 
Then you're going not to habitually sin. Then you're not going to carelessly sin. Then you're not going to calculatingly sin. Then you're not going to callously sin. Then you're not going to live in doubt and disobedience and fear, but love for the Word of God. In fact, John said, when you really get that lavish love of God, when you really get it, (laughs) you're going to be spending the rest of your life purifying yourself. Purifying yourself. That's just over-occupied with sin and fighting the temptation and fighting this and fighting that. No, no, no. You're just going to be spending the rest of your life, thank you, Jesus, and being empowered by that lavish love. Because, he said, while we don't know what glorious things are awaiting us on the other end, we don't know everything about that, but we know one thing is that as we are princes and princesses in waiting, we are waiting. We don't know everything about what is going to happen, but we are waiting. Because when He comes, we're going to be with Him. That's enough. I remembered an illustration that will make the point far better than I can. And I remember this was said to me many, many, many years ago. And it was said to me by a villager in the Middle East. And it comes right out of the slums in the village with which he was experienced. It will give you this understanding that John is trying to tell you. That when you see, look, (laughs) the lavish love of the Father, all of your life is going to be a matter of of being in the presence of the Father. And when sin comes, you just be cleansed. This man said, you know, in the village, you can see a duck in a pond. That pond is filthy, is murky, the water is dirty and muddy, but that duck is in its element, in that dirty, murky filthy pond. You take the duck out and you wash it and within seconds she's right back into that dirty, filthy, murky water in that pond. He said, but if you notice a dove on the side of the street, muddy street, and then a car would go by and As the car goes by, it splashes some dirt and mud on that dove. He said, do you know what happens? Watch that dove. It immediately gets busy with its beak cleaning itself. Never rests. Why? Because by nature, the dove can't stand dirt and muck and filth. But not the duck. The duck enjoys being in that filthy water. And then he looked at me and he said, Brother Michael, the way a person knows whether he or she is transformed by the power of Christ, have experienced that lavish love, need to ask the question, am I a duck or am I a dove? (laughs) Beloved, I want to tell you, I have seen people, when they get into trouble, they go to church. They even go to prayer meetings. They pray. They even cry buckets. And as soon as the trouble 
is over. They're not anywhere to be seen. See, these are the ducks. These are the ducks. Why? Because they really are like the duck. They have never allowed the lavish love of the Father to overwhelm them and change their nature. And so they temporarily clean themselves. They temporarily make an effort. They temporarily, oh, but they're like the duck. They immediately go back to the pond. Murky, dirty, filthy pond. Oh, but for those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, those who have been living in a state of awe and wonder and amazement at the lavish love of God, those who are truly experienced and responded to the extravagance of the love and the grace of God, whenever sin comes into their life, they like the dove immediately. They can't stand it because it's against their nature. It's against their nature. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. In the first message, life at its best, we saw the only answer to sin, not rationalizing it, not explaining it, not saying, well, the culture has made me do it, or this person made me do it, or because I've inherited in my father and my mother. No, no, no. He said there's only one way. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The dove goes immediately into asking for forgiveness. The duck will continuously and habitually live in a state of lawlessness. The duck may experience temporary conviction or temporary confession or temporary repentance, but the nature has not changed. The nature has not changed, and only God can do that. And so the question is this, are you a duck? Listen, be honest with God, because if you are, Jesus can turn you into a dove today. He really can. He alone can change your nature, and therefore you can come to Him, and He will turn you from a duck into a dove. But if you are a dove who's trying to live like a duck, will you listen to me, please? You are living in a state of conflictedness, which we saw in the last message. And the reason you're living in the state of conflictedness is because you were not made for the mud of sin. You're not made for the mud of sin. You're made to be cleansed on a daily basis, confessed and washed and be purified. And you can begin that state of cleansing by a confession. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.